as I was thinking about Hebrews chapter 3, I was, I was thinking how important some people are in people's minds. And that, that drew me to do a little research again on the internet. Uh, what, what do people think are the most significant people in the world? And I came across this little study that was done by two computer scientists who uh, you wonder, well, how in the world did they figure out who are the most significant people in the world? Well, here's what they did. It was based on on the impact on opinions that certain individuals had over time, as well as how that's been reflected in their Wikipedia pages. So the using the, the Internet's encyclopedia, these two computer scientists uh, came up with algorithms and, and all this sort of stuff to come up with this ultimate list of the world's most significant people. Uh, number 10, I'm not going to give you like all thousand of these, but uh, on number 10, by the way, I, I think this is uh, overrated on the United States because I think these guys are from the States. But anyway, here, here it is. Uh, <clears throat> so number, number 10 was Thomas Jefferson, who was the main writer of the Declaration of Independence, 1776, ended up becoming the third president of the USA. Number nine, Alexander the Great, who uh, ended up becoming a leader of the Greek Empire. Number eight uh, was uh, Alexander the Great's teacher, also called considered the founder of Western philosophy, is Aristotle. Number seven is disturbing, but anyway, number seven is Adolf Hitler, who of course became leader of Nazi Germany during World War II time period. Number six, uh, George Washington was the one of the founding fathers of the USA, uh, became the first president. And number five is Abraham Lincoln, who was another president of the USA during the Civil War period. And then number four is Muhammad. Uh, we know typically know him as prophet of, of Islam. And then number three comes in William Shakespeare, considered the greatest writer in the English language. Uh, some of you may have studied his various plays. He's considered a playwright, uh, various plays. Oh, you know, like Macbeth and Julius Caesar and, you know, Romeo and Juliet and those sort of things. And then number two is Napoleon Bonaparte, which surprised me, frankly. But anyway, he, he was the leader of the French Empire. And then I'm glad to see number one is Jesus, <laughs> the most significant person according to this, these computer scientists and their algorithms connected to Wikipedia. Well, that's, that's the top ten according to that various list. But it's interesting, where would Israel put Moses on their list? You ever thought about that? Well, in ancient Israel, Moses was revered as the greatest of all Hebrews, and in their mind's eye, was considered the greatest man of history. And you need to understand that mindset of, of an ancient Israeli uh, in, in order to kind of dive into our text here for today. You know, I have to understand that belief if you're really going to get the message that God would have for us here from Hebrews chapter 3. So if, if you were to ask an ancient uh, Hebrew, you know, where, you know, their, their list, well, at the top would probably be Moses. 
most likely. And so with that in mind, let's just uh, dive into our text here, and you'll, you'll see that uh, Hebrews 3 has to address Moses. Hebrews 3, verse 1, we'll start there. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That ends that paragraph in Hebrews 3. So, before we kind of dive into seeing how Jesus is superior to Moses, we need to understand a little bit of who is Moses. Otherwise... Uh, you're going to have, if you don't understand that, you're going to have this, this barrier in your, in your mind to really understand uh, what's going on here. So, who is Moses? Number one, Moses was chosen by God. If you're familiar with the Old Testament story in, in, in Exodus, you know his life was miraculously preserved from birth. And uh, even though Pharaoh was, was trying to kill all the baby boys of the Hebrews, uh, they, he, was ended, he was nurtured from birth because uh, his mother had put him in a basket and he was, he was plucked out of the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter, the, the princess, and was given a royal upbringing. And then as a man, his election as deliverer was, was sealed when God called him after he had, he had fled out into the wilderness and been out there for about 40 years. Uh, God used a burning bush to, to talk to Moses and called him to this mission as deliverer. And so that's number two. Moses becomes the deliverer of Israel. And so God used Moses to, do, to display his great power there to the world superpower at that time, which was Egypt. And so the book of Exodus tells us there the various things that happened. We... we I'll just fly through some of them, okay? We, we see the Nile River turned to blood. Uh, there was plagues of frogs and gnats and flies that uh, swarmed on Egypt. Hail and boils afflicted both man and beast. And then on Passover, the, the last one, all the firstborn were, who, who weren't under the blood perished. And then after the uh, Hebrews left Egypt and, and took a lot of belongings with them from the Egyptians, God used Moses then to part the Red Sea. The Red sea sorry. And then the, all, all the uh, Hebrews were able to pass through on dry ground, made it safely to the other side, and then God destroyed Pharaoh's army by bringing the sea back again. And so while they were... They were in the, the, the desert there in the wilderness. Moses, God used Moses to, to strike a rock and imagine some two million people giving them water and then all the cattle as well. 
and all their livestock, giving them water in a very thirsty, dry place. And so here's the point, my friends. Over and over again, we see God using Moses to deliver Israel. And then number three, Moses served as Israel's greatest prophet. Uh, we see God communicated uh, two, two other prophets in the Bible, but we see God doing it indirectly through various means. But the Bible says that God communicated directly to Moses. For example, Numbers chapter 12 says this. I'm quoting from Numbers 12 or 6. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So Moses served as Israel's greatest prophet. And number four, Moses was the lawgiver. So remember, these are all reasons showing why, why ancient Israel at least considered Moses to be their greatest. He would be at the top of their list of most significant people. And so to the Jew, the law was the greatest thing in the whole world. They loved it. Moses was the conduit for the, the Ten Commandments, the, the whole Levitical laws, the whole sacrificial system, the, the, even the tabernacle itself. Moses was the conduit that delivered all that to God's people. So everything in their religion recalled his very name. For example, they they even called it the law of Moses. That's how revered he was. Number five, Moses was Israel's greatest historian. And so under divine inspiration, he authored the Pentateuch. Holy Spirit used Moses to do that If you're not familiar with the Pentateuch, that's your first five books in your Bible. So Genesis through Deuteronomy gives us a lot of history there as well as as the law. But the Bible tells us that Moses was humble. It's one of the things that makes him great. So Numbers 12 verse 3 says that he was more humble than anyone else on earth. Isn't that amazing? With great fame often goes big heads, great pride, but not wasn't the case with Moses, at least not after he came out of the wilderness, after being 40 years out there looking after sheep. Uh, those of you who look after animals may have been humbled a few times. I'm sure I have over the years. They've, they've tend to humble me a little bit, not enough, but a little. And so we see that God humbled Moses by taking him into the desert for 40 years. He seemed to have been quite proud the first 40 years, being prince of Egypt, but Numbers 12 tells us he was humble. And then last of all, we see in Deuteronomy that Moses was buried by God. Uh, Not many people can say that. In fact, I can't think of anybody that gets uh, that kind of attention. And so Deuteronomy 34 verse 5 says that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. And then we see the book of Deuteronomy, the last one that God used Moses to write. In chapter 34, there, there's an epitaph of, uh, for Moses. And God said this, Deuteronomy 34.10, 
There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Nice epitaph. Wouldn't it be nice to have that said about you? And so, here's the point, my friends. After seeing why the Jews considered Moses to be the greatest, now we can maybe understand a little bit of why the Holy Spirit is addressing Moses here in this text, showing us the superiority of Jesus Christ over Moses. So if Moses is at the top of Israel's list of most significant people, well then, need to show that there is someone even greater than Moses. And so as a result, uh, uh, this, this is important because the, the Christians and the Jews didn't necessarily view Christ as superior to Moses. You might be a surprise to you, but there was a lot of people who would put Moses first. And as a result, they were in danger If Christ wasn't first, they're in danger of drifting back into Israel's religion of Judaism, especially when when the persecution started to get hot and and intensified. So that's what's going on during this time. And so in, in light of that, the author of Hebrews gives us a command in verse 1. A simple little command, and we'll see the words here in verse 1 because it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus is imperative in the Greek. Something that you and I must do. That word consider implies that we're to give attention. It is the idea of continuous observation. The idea is this, to put your mind on Jesus And have your mind stay on Jesus to remain there so that we would understand who He is and what He wills. Now, why do we need to keep considering Christ? Why do we need to keep considering Jesus when, after all, as Christians, if you're a Christian, you're already in Christ, you're already identified with Christ. Because of all of us, are, we're far from fully discovering, really, all of the glories of Christ. We haven't discovered all of His beauties. We haven't discovered all that He is. We haven't arrived, have we? And so, the Holy Spirit says to us here, gaze on Jesus. And keep gazing on Jesus. And, and don't look around at all the other things, the rituals and the problems and all your persecutions Keep considering Jesus. Why? Because you don't need anything else. You don't need anything else. He is enough. He is sufficient for everything. And now that you have this supreme reality, Hebrews is saying, keep your attention on Jesus. And the reason so many Christians, by the way, are often weak, we're worried, is we don't, we don't do this. We don't keep considering Jesus. And, and so His strength and His comfort, His guidance are not ours. The Holy Spirit continually says to every believer here, 
consider Jesus. So when life gets rough and problems in your life seem like just no way out, there's there's no solution, and everything is just seems bad, you know, it's, it's the old the old saying that some people say, if I had no bad luck, I'd have no luck at all, right? If you ever feel that way, well, go to Jesus. If you're disappointed, you're depressed, and depression just seems to become normal, and there's so many temptations that seem impossible for you to resist, Hebrews is saying, put your gaze on Jesus. Keep it there, and keep intently gazing at Jesus until He somehow just begins to unfold before your very eyes. You say, oh, that, that's nice. I, I, I can see the command is consider Jesus, but how do we fix our minds on Jesus? How do I do that? Well, here's just some practical things to think about. How, how, how do we fix our minds on Jesus? Number one, fixing the mind begins with desire. Begins with your desire. It's an issue of your heart. One of the biblical authors we call David, he often did this. You read the book of Psalms. He wanted to see the Lord over and over again. He just had this desire. For example, in Psalm 27, David said this, One thing have I asked of the Lord. By the way, what what would that one thing be for you? One thing I have asked of the Lord. If you only had one thing to ask, what would it be? David says this, that that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's Psalm 27, verse 4. You see, David's desire just in that one verse was God. Number two, fixing the mind calls for a concentration calls for concentration. It's kind of like the person who, this is a joke, by the way, but this person was was staring at this bottle that they had bought from the store. And the friend walks up to this individual and says, what are you doing? He said, I'm concentrating. Why are you doing that? Why are you just staring at the bottle? Because it says, concentrate on the bottle. It, it, you know, it's, it's a joke, but what, the point is, what, what, when somebody says, you know, what are you doing, and you're just staring at something, what, what, you're, you're intently focused on that object. Of course, they missed the whole point of what the concentrate meant, but concentration is, is a serious intent focus, laser beam focus, and that's what we need to fix our minds on Jesus. Number three, fixing the mind requires discipline. Requires discipline. Interestingly enough, Hebrews in chapter 12 goes on to tell us to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2 says, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. So Hebrews is telling us exactly what chapter 3 is telling us here. Look to Jesus. It requires discipline. You're going to have to lay aside some things like an athlete might have to do to win the race. 
An athlete doesn't, you don't see athletes in the Olympics go out and purposely, at least when it comes time for the actual race, you don't see them purposely putting on weight. They're doing everything they can to take off weight usually, right? When they want to run fast. They don't wear heavy clothes. They wear light clothes. They don't, you don't see them eating at McDonald's, at least not before the race. Often afterward they do, it seems like, right? But uh, no, they're, they're, they're trying to eat lots of protein or other stuff to, to keep the body weight off so they can be the most efficient runner that they can be. That requires discipline. And it's the same in the Christian life. We have to lay aside various weights in our life, things that slow us down, drag us down, so that we can run with endurance. It's a long-distance race. We don't know how long that is. It could be many, many years. But it's the race that God has set before us. And in the process, we have to look to Jesus. Instead of looking at other stuff around us, keep looking to Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And then the last one is you've, to fix the mind, it requires time. True reflection just can't happen with a, a, a quick glance. And it's only sometimes when we kind of sit still and, and, and gaze at things that Jesus will fill our souls. And that's why the Bible tells us to meditate on the Scriptures day and night. It's a bit like stopping to smell the roses. You ever done that? You ever walk through a garden and sometimes it's like you just kind of quickly go through and, and, and it just quickly goes past you and you don't get to really notice much that way. Your mind's not fixed on, on the garden and on the roses. You've got to stop, get close, gaze, take some time like you might with a rose. Well, what wisdom the writer here has poured on the persecuted church. See, he knew that its people's survival lay in turning their minds away from their trials and then fixing their minds on Jesus. It's not emptying your mind. You have to replace the wrong content with good content. And this is what all of us need, by the way, above everything else. Lack of this is why many Christians are useless or falling by the way. They need to fix their minds on Jesus. They've taken their minds off Jesus. And when you do that, you're likely to stumble and fall. So the text here tells us why Jesus is superior to Moses. We've seen who Moses is. We've asked this very important question. Well, how do we obey this command? What various ways can we do this? But fixing our minds on Jesus. So let's see here now in the text why Jesus is superior to Moses. Well, there could be other reasons, but this text gives us a few. The first one we see is in reference to his office. We see that Jesus is the apostle and high priest. Again, look at verse 1. After it says, consider Jesus, it says that he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. So Jesus is superior in, in, in several ways here. Jesus is superior because he has two offices. As far as we know, Moses only had the, had the one office of, of prophet. Uh, 
which, by the way, could be likened similar to an apostle, if you just take the general meaning of the word apostle. Uh, Though he was never called such in Scripture, Moses could be considered an apostle here, if if you take the definition of apostle to just mean sent one. And so in this sense, Moses, in that sense, Moses was God's apostle. He was God's sent one to bring his people out of Egypt, to, to give his people the law and the covenant. But notice here, Jesus has two offices. He is the apostle and the high priest. And so, as far as we know, in fact, the Bible is pretty clear, Moses wasn't a high priest. In fact, you remember the story, I hope, Moses' brother Aaron was the one who became the first high priest. Moses was never a high priest. And so, in that sense, Jesus is superior to Moses, in at least in office, because he's holding both offices here, whereas Moses only had one. So, in the office of apostle, we also see Jesus is superior because he brought a better covenant. Hebrews goes on to tell us more about that. It was a better covenant. The old covenant was a terrible covenant, wasn't it? It's, it's what God had for them at that time. But praise God for the new covenant in Christ. Jesus brought that. And then three, Jesus was the sacrifice that made this better covenant effective. Because Hebrews said it was the blood of the bulls and the goats was never meant to take away sin reminded us of our sin. It it, it pointed to the the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sin of the world. So this is important, that Jesus wasn't just the high priest, he's also the sacrifice who made this better covenant effective. And so Jesus is the supreme apostle. He is the supreme sent one from God. We also see here that Jesus is also our great high priest. And so since... His role as high priest is is going to be dealt with in the chapters to come. Uh, I'm not going to elaborate much on that at the moment, but just suffice it to say that he is the supreme priest. Uh, There is no one greater than him in this this role. So he is, and with that means he is a mediator. He is the go-between, the between man, between God and man. So Timothy calls him the God man. And so he's the one who brings man and God together. And nobody else could have done that. And so he brings God to man and man to God. That's why he became man, so that could be possible. So we see in his office, Jesus holds two offices here. He is the apostle and high priest. But let's move on. How is Jesus superior to Moses? Number two, we see in his work, Jesus is the builder of the house. Look at verse 3. It says Jesus is, roughly, Jesus is the builder of the house, because it says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. What does that mean? Well, let's make sure we understand what is the house here in this context. Okay? A house in this context, the word means household. So it's referring to people of the house, 
uh, not the building or a, a dwelling place. Okay, so what people would this be referring to? Well, at least the the Hebrews, the Old Testament believers, were considered God's household, and Moses was considered the steward in God's household. And you say, well, what's a steward? A steward is is uh, someone who's the the caretaker, the manager of someone else's property. And so a steward, he obviously doesn't own the house. He's just managing it for the owner. So God's the one here who owns the house, being Israel. And today, carrying that that on, we see Jesus is building his house, which we would call the church. And so in other words, Christians are the new household here. Jesus is the one who's caring for them. Moses was faithful, it says, but he's just a part of the house. Praise God for his faithfulness, but he's not the builder of these people. Jesus is the one who made these people. And and that's the the, the main difference that that particular point is is making. So Jesus created Israel. Well, he created all things, didn't he? Because John 1 says, verse 3, all things came into being by Jesus. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's John 1, 3. So Moses here is only a member of the household that's being built. So hopefully, automatically, you're thinking, okay, he's just a member. He's, he's not the builder. Then, therefore, the builder is, is the one who is supreme. That's the point that Hebrews is making. And since God's the one who created all things, then it shows that Jesus is God. Now, before any of us became Christians, someone introduced us, I assume so anyway, somebody introduced you to the good news of the gospel. That person is responsible, at least in a human sense, for part of God's house. They're building, in a human sense, building God's household. But on the divine side, we see God alone is the one who creates the house, who is the one continuing to build it as New believers are added to this household. Human witnesses are just instruments that God uses. An instrument is inferior, if you will, subservient to the one who does the building. He is the builder. That's Jesus is is greater than any of the tools that he uses. I know hopefully that seems obvious, but this wasn't so obvious to, to ancient Israel. Some of them were tempted to compromise here, putting Moses even above Jesus. So Moses is, he's just a part of this house of Israel. He's an instrument of God being used by God to build it. So if if they were tempted to hold on to some form of Judaism, or even to its greatest leader, is, is then you're holding on to just a symbol of reality. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, don't hold on to the symbol, hold on to reality itself. Hold on to Jesus, because he is reality itself. So the author here tells us a third way that Jesus is superior to Moses. And this one has to be in regard to his person. We see in verse 6 that Jesus is the Son. He is described as a Son. Verse 6 says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
So in this passage here, we see that Moses is by person a servant. While Jesus here is described as a son. There's a great difference between a servant and a son. Particularly if you put yourself in their kind of shoes back in their time period. Because you'll see verses in the Bible that kind of describe this. For example, in John 8.35, it says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So here's the point, my friends. Servants come and go. But a son is something that is life for life. And that makes Jesus superior to Moses because he is the son. But our text here ends with an interesting sentence. Verse 6 says, And we are his household. You could say household. We are his people. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So let me ask you this question, my friends. Listen closely. How can we know that we're truly saved? How can you know that you are truly saved? In other words, how can you know that you are a part of God's household? Well, verse 6 tells us here. And the answer is, by holding fast our confidence and our boasting firm here until the very end. Now, that doesn't mean that we're saved if you just kind of somehow hang on to the end. That's not what it's saying. But Because you can't save yourself. You can't even... Uh, keep yourself saved you don't save yourself nor keep yourself saved and so the meaning is just this this idea of a continuation here is is proof of the reality in you so you can tell that you're really the house of god because you stay there you stay there so the one who falls away shows that they never belonged in the first place so when you read for example in first john chapter 2 um, there's this idea of those those who went out from us were never of us, right? So, you know, if, if someone falls away, right, Jesus is saying, well, they, they, they weren't a Christian to begin with. Well, apparently there were many Jews who had fallen away. And, and also apparently it seems, as you read the book of Hebrews, there were some at least tempted to go away and, and return to particularly their religion of Judaism, which I, you know, in one sense, you can't blame them. If they're not a believer and, and, and persecution comes, you'd be tempted to go back. Well, I, I prefer, I don't want to be temp, you know, tempted in that way, and I don't want to be persecuted. You can kind of understand that. And so there's this temptation to fall away. And so the writer of Hebrews is giving these, these helpful words of warning and encouragement. Some were convinced of the gospel. Some, some may have been on the edge of, of their commitment, kind of sitting on the fence. Some had even made an outward profession of faith. You read the various warning passages in Hebrews, you get that idea. But, but whatever the case is, they fell away from the church, proving that they were never part of it. They weren't really true believers. True saints persevere. That's what Hebrews is saying here. True saints persevere. That doesn't mean we're sinless, okay? That's not the point. But we persevere, and, and their perseverance, perseverance is evidence of their salvation. It doesn't, it doesn't make them saved. It shows they are saved. Does that, 
hope you, hopefully it makes sense. Because here's what Jesus said in John 8, verse 31. He said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If, notice what he said, conditional statement, qualifier, if you abide in my word, if you, you stay there, then you are truly disciples of mine. And so this passage here says two important things to us. Number one, first, we should be sure we are really Christians. Be sure you really are a Christian. Don't take that for granted because Scripture says several times, for example, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself. You say, okay, test. How do I do that? The best way that I could show you is go read 1 John. Read the book of 1 John. There's all kinds of various tests there that John gives. He's, he's a very black and white kind of a guy. He doesn't mess around with words. He's not beating around the bush. He just says you're either this or you're that. You're, you're in the light or you're in darkness, right? It's, to him, it was pretty clear. So look at those various things, test of, of who you are there. So test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Second of all, then when we know that we are in Christ, don't forget the command here. Consider Jesus. In other words, keep your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because the book of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is superior. Right? Whatever you're tempted to place above Jesus, you, know, you may not do that in word, but remember, sometimes we do that in, in various practical ways of how we live our lives. Even what we think about shows who is really superior. And so when you know you're in Christ, keep your eyes on Him, because He is superior. He is the one that we need, and we are complete in Him. So, may God be gracious to us, cause us to really believe this truth that Jesus is superior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us this precious truth that Jesus is superior. We're thankful that uh, we, he, he fulfills all these offices as apostle, the, the sent one, as well as our great high priest. We're thankful that he is the son. We're thankful, there's so much more we could add to this, but thank, we're thankful for the simplicity and, and the helpfulness of this very passage cause us, we pray, to obey this command. We, we cannot do this in our own strength. We need your enabling. It would cause us to consider Jesus, to have our minds firmly and consistently fixed on Jesus. So maybe just take into consideration the various things that Scripture tells us to do to to, to be able to do that. So we're thankful that we can confess these great truths because of your work in us. So we, we ask that you would continue to do a great work in us and, until that final day. We know you will. So conform us in the image of Christ. May these glorious truths have an effect on, on who we are and what we do, that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.